Hello everyone, uh, good evening. Uh, I'm going to make a start. Uh, my name is Jodie Marks, Exhibitions and Events Curator at the Architecture Centre next door here to the Arnold Feeney. Pleased to welcome you to this evening's event by Niall McLaughlin Architects. As ever, the Architecture Centre is grateful for the support of Arts Council England and UE Bristol, as, many, as well as many other supporters. And this evening sees the third in a trilogy of events from across the year that the Architecture Centre is co-presenting with the Bristol and Bath branch of the RBA, which is kindly supported by Ipstock Brick. And this is where we've been celebrating RBA's key awards with um, winners from 2015. So back in March, we welcomed Charlotte Skeen Catling to speak about the RBA House of the Year, Flint House. And in July, Paul Monaghan of AHMM presented the Sterling Prize winning Burntwood School, which also coincided with the Architecture Centre's exhibition on 20 years of the RIBA Sterling Prize. And now it's my pleasure to introduce Norma Gochen, uh, the 2015 recipient of the Stephen Lawrence Prize, um, as, as well as many other awards, including, as of last night, the RIBA Jenks Award, which since 2003 set out to reward individuals or practices that have made a major contribution to the theory and practice of architecture. So once Niles presented this evening, I'm pleased to invite to the stage Rob Gregory, who, as many of you may know, was until recently the Architecture Centre's programme manager. Rob will join Niall to uh, chair the Q&A in conversation, um, and there'll be roaming mics available for you to uh, join in too, so do form your questions uh, throughout uh, the presentation and uh, wait for a microphone um, when, the, when the opportunity rises. Um, and then Matarza Rizvi from the Bristol and, Branch, Bristol and Bath branch of the RBA will close the event with a, a vote of thanks and some news on forthcoming activities, including two more lectures that will be here, uh, uh, one on the 9th of November on emerging practices and one on the 30th of November with Chris Loyne, who was a Sterling Prize finalist this year. Um, they're in partnership with UE Bristol, so we hope you can join with them at two, uh, with us two, and you can book through the box office here. Um, so on to this evening. Um, Niall McGoughan Architects was the 2015 recipient of the Stephen Lawrence Prize, which was set up in memory of the teenager who was setting out on the road to becoming an architect when he was murdered in 1993. Uh, the RBA Prize is intended to encourage fresh architecture talent and reward the best examples of projects that have a construction budget of less than a million pounds. So uh, the nominees were a South London house built around a pear tree, a seaside stage and shelter in West Sussex, a living laboratory built from rubbish in Brighton, a converted 18th century threshing barn in Kent, a Wiltshire garden retreat and a low-NG house in Somerset. They were featured on the shortlist, but it was Narmagrocken's fishing hut in Hampshire that won the prize um, from a client brief that wanted a secure place to store boats and fishing tackle, but that also could function as a meeting place and a shelter for anglers. Um, closer to home, another of um, Niall's more local projects is the TQ2 Bridge, um, which is currently featured in the Architecture Centre's 20th anniversary exhibition, Place, Time and Architecture. As part of this, we teamed up with RBA Southwest to share 20 local RBA award-winning projects. Um, from over the last 20 years. And these are on free takeaway postcards which are available to collect um, from the exhibition. Um, so do, do come and visit that, which closes on the 13th of November. You can collect the whole range. Um, so, and now won the, that award uh, for the TQ Bridge in, in 2009, RBA Southwest Award. Um, it's the stainless steel pedestrian and cycle bridge with 55,000 laser cut perforations, and it's at the back of Temple Meads railway station, linking it with the Temple Quay area. Um, judges remarked that architecture, engineering, and lighting are beautifully combined as the simple, elegant structure that the brief envis envisaged. And um, 
and I know I was going to be talking on uh, current projects mostly, as well as the fishing huts. And without further ado, if you can join me in welcoming Niall to the lectern. Thank you. So I had to uh, give a lecture on theory and practice last night at London, and you asked me to speak about the fishing hut, which is a fairly simple oak-crafted building tonight in Bristol. So I thought that it would be more interesting for all of us if I didn't give the same lecture twice. Um, and it means that the, um, the look back at my career and the, the, pro the, the projects that have been published, which were discussed last night, I'm not going to discuss this evening, and I'm going to do that rather unpopular thing of showing you all of the new work that we're doing. So it won't be work that you're familiar with, and in fact, with relatively few ex exceptions, it won't even be work that's finished. But at least I'll take you through the thinking of the current projects um, and uh, give you a sense of the kind of work that we're doing at the moment. We're in a fortunate position that we have, um, as a practice, we have about seven or eight um, first reasonably significant projects finishing in the next three or four months. And so you'll have lots of photographs of nearly finished buildings and building sites. Um, what I want to speak about, first of all, is my involvement with Oxford over many years. It was a, a strange coincidence that I did um, competition for a competitive interview for a sure start under the Heathrow runway in Hounslow, with the planes going over right above us all the time on a rainy November night, which I didn't win, and came out feeling pretty gloomy about myself. Um, but the next day, I got um, an email from one of the judges saying that he liked my work, and I was pleased and thought nothing more about it. And from a small practice that was doing house extensions in very few public buildings, um, a few months later I received an invitation to enter a competition in Oxford because this architect had dropped out and couldn't do the competition and they needed one more person in it. And it was one of those little breaks that you get in your career. You think, well, what am I doing here in Hounslow on a rainy Tuesday night? And it turns out that most of the buildings that were interesting for me in the last few years have come from that little encounter. But it means that the city of Oxford, which I didn't know very well, has become a, a place which we know very well indeed. We're doing two major master plans for the university, and we're working with about five or six colleges there on su substantial projects. One which is a competition that we won a few years ago is for Worcester College. In terms of the Cambridge and Oxford College typology, it's very interesting. It used to sit at the, uh, the boundary of Oxford, and you can see in the top of the image here Bowman Street being built down towards this building, which would have been um, just beyond the edge of the city. So you can see in the top image the city making its way down and connecting itself into that building. Um, and then you come through this rather logia, beautiful loggia. The, the, the building, the front there, is done by Hawksmoor and Clark, 
and you come through into this beautiful little uh, three-sided court which opens out into a substantial garden. And um, let me see if I can move this forward. Oh, I do it on the laptop. Okay, that makes sense. Um, and the garden is one of the most beautiful gardens in Oxford, and you can see this sense of the edge of the city coming through the portal of the building and finding yourself in this open court that looks to a garden and then beyond to the kind of green sward of hills around Oxford. It's an almost idyllic setting. And what's very enjoyable about it um, is the sort of development of the site because uh, there was a grand plan done by Hawksmoor and Clark which was never finished for a very formal uh, Baroque uh, court. Um, then Keane comes along and makes one side of it. And there was an old Benedictine monastery on what's on your right-hand side here, um, along this line here, which was going to be taken down. So they could never afford to take it down. And so the singularity of the three-sided court, which you should have had, was never achieved. And you get that thing that Oxford is full of, which is a grand plan that gets stymied by layers and layers of reality over time. And nothing gets quite done as it should have been it's what um, an artist I know calls the cock-up theory of urbanism, which I quite like. The idea that things, things get things, that all of the kind of pure intentions are never quite complete, and then they get other sets of intentions layered over them, which creates a great sense of sort of uh, den den density and, and, and a kind of a, a, a complex fabric to the city. What I was interested in looking at the typology of the Oxford College was that <clears throat> it moves from the quadrangular, which is a kind of medieval type of the kind of monastic court, and it moves probably through the influence of Christopher Wren, who was looking at the Envalide Hospital. It moves to this three-sided court, which is only built once in Oxford, in Queen's College. Um, and then that typology is exported off to Cambridge into, in, into the east coast of America. And in Oxford, they call them quads, and in Cambridge, they call them courts. And it's a kind of a shibboleth or a difference between the two places. But what I liked about this is that there was a second three-sided court made in Oxford, and what they've done is to, uh, is to open it out, not towards the city, but towards the countryside. And so I began to think of places like the Villa Giulia and so on, those kind of Renaissance palazzos that stand on the edge of the town, and where the building itself is a palace that acts as a transition between the kind of dense urban center and the notion uh, of a beyond, of a kind of rural, idyllic beyond. And then the gardens operate as the sort of imagined place between town and city, and you can see the typology there. And in the Palais de Luxembourg in Paris, you get this rather extraordinary cour d'honneur at the front of it, which kind of takes the space of the city into it and frames you and holds you, then brings you into the principal court beyond which there's a large garden. So there's this sense of a powerful transition from the life of the city out into this imagined idyllic life of the garden and then beyond into the operating countryside. And when... Um, Worcester College was built, it would have had some of that character, the three-sided court. They build this little court on air, the Hawksmoor and Clark one, which is, which is remarkable. It's very beautiful. In the library here above this loggia, there's a fantastic book, which is Inigo Jones's copy of Palladio's Quattro Libri, marked up in pencil by Inigo Jones with all of his notes as he went around Italy. They've got a fantastic architectural collection there. And here's the building by Keane at the end, the, uh, the Provost House, looking out into the garden. Uh, these are, this is the collection of buildings I've spoken about. And in the late 1970s and early 80s, um, Richard McCormack designed, I think, one of his best buildings in Oxford here, which is the Sainsbury Building, at the end of a rather modest housing development. This is the great garden of Worcester College. This is the cricket pitch surrounded by mature trees and the canals going through Oxford. And this lovely serpentine lake 
which you saw in some of the drawings earlier, which, which forms the thing that you come through to. So you go entrance court, loggia, formal court, provost garden, the serpentine lake, the college garden. It's a beautiful spatial sequence. And what uh, Richard McCormick did very <coughs> interestingly was to put this student accommodation at one end of the serpentine lake. <coughs> and it creates a sense that <coughs> the lake itself links the modern building to the older Oxford College. And we were really fascinated by that. The site we were given for the competition was an old tennis court in this corner. And we wondered, is there a way of using the lake to create this longer transition through? There's a lovely little gatehouse here designed by McCormick. And it's so symmetrical on this street that you imagine that McCormick must have thought at one stage that he was going to get the opportunity to put another building on this side and create something <coughs> which would give a reason for the symmetry of this, of, of, of this gatehouse. But it never happened, and there are some, to put it at best, unprepossessing student accommodation buildings that were built here in the 90s. And um, the plan that we came up with, uh, so looking at a more formal plan and the, 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 the scale of the quadrangular court here, um, there's a lovely detail here at the base of the Provost House where a weir appears to come from the base of this formal court and to fill um, the serpentine pond as though it's the source of the water in the pond. And so what we've done in our first proposal, working with Kim Wilkie, the landscape gardener, is to say that we'll take the lake up to McCormack's building, but then take it beyond the building um, and make the edge of our building connected to the lake. And we'll put another weir in our building, at the underside of this, that fills the lake. And so the lake is filled from both ends. And these buildings then become notionally connected across the park through the kind of connecting metaphor of the water. And sitting in that, in this little L-shaped court, we can allow Richard McCormick's building to sort of sit in a space between the water and the city. <clears throat> and looking at his gatehouse here, our proposal, although the site was for a building, our proposal was that we would build a new square here. And the square aligned with the gatehouse would have a new, a new causeway or bridge that comes across from the gatehouse and takes you out onto the cricket pitch. And so that access in Oxford, which seemed to have been promised by Richard McCormack, is then in some way completed by the bridge and the way through into the countryside. And we're speaking now, although it's not happening in the first phase of the project, but just doing a little bit of work to these rather <coughs> ordinary buildings to just do enough to state a possible symmetry between these parts so the square completes some of the promise that McCormack might have wanted. Um, and so in a sense, that's the plan of the project. The building itself is a simple brief. It's got a theater, and it's got a dance studio, and it has a, what they call a digital hub, which is a computer room and cafe for learning, and it has seminar rooms. And obviously, it has this rather beautiful position overlooking the cricket and the sport. <clears throat> and I suppose our key development is to say that we would open up a tiny three-sided court here between the existing buildings and our building, so that this little sequence of quadrangles that you get moving through the college here is completed and extended by this quadrangle, which brings you into the building. And like many buildings that we do, we wanted to feel like a threshold building, a building that you come through and discover a landscape through the building. So coming in here, <coughs> you would get your first glimpse of the cricket pitch across the water. You're then taken into another court. And from that court, you come into um, a kind of an open fo uh, foyer area with um, a view out over the cricket pitch and back into the theater. That's the idea of the project. And you can see it explored in a little bit more detail here. I've, I've rotated the plan around. 
But here's the, 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 gate, the, the MJP gatehouse, the McCormick uh, gatehouse, the square that we're making, the bridge across, the water coming through, the dance studio, which overlooks the water, the source of the lake here. And then there's this kind of open loggia area and uh, a, a covered terrace um, out onto the cricket pitch. We get a better sense of it from the model, the, um, the gatehouse and the square here, and our building, which is tucked into all of the mature trees around the edge. One of the things the college has is a very strong Shakespeare tradition, and we wanted it to feel as though it's a theatre in the garden. I keep thinking of Midsummer's Night's Dream or something like that, the sense of a garden in summer with young people, the theatre being performed in the garden. They all have great memories of a production in the temp of The Tempest in the 1960s when they put stepping stones just beneath the water in the lake, and Ariel ran across the surface of the water. It was a great sort of coup de theatre that they still remember. <clears throat> so here's our little freehand sketch of just trying to pick up the stitches from Richard McCormack's set of intentions. It was sad in a way that there was um, a discussion with some of his partners that it might be possible to come and show him the project and talk to him about it, and we were planning to do it. And of course, he died just before we had that opportunity, which I think was a great shame. And so we're looking at the model here with the square, the gatehouse, the bridge across, and then this new little court that we're making, which is the entrance court for the building. And somehow coming through this court and arriving out here is the story of the building. There's a sense in the CGI here of the dance studio, the water coming out of it as being the source of water for, for, the, for the lake. And then looking from the dance studio back, you can see the little bridge across here and here's Richard McCormack's building in the background, and then you know that that water connects all the way through the Serpentine Lake back to the Provost House. The plan of the building was something that we've tried to do. I hope it comes off. <clears throat> I'm not sure I know of an example of it elsewhere, but it's an interesting opportunity. It's this idea of a theatre in the garden. So formally, our, uh, our, our foyer area has got this uh, quite, quite complex and um, robust oak lattice over the whole of the ceiling structure. And you can see that this is a square. And what we've done is to cut a very simple stone amphitheater out of the base of the square in one quadrant. And then these are great stone fins that stand all along that, all along that arc. But you have that square there, the stage at one corner of it, and the bar at the other. That seems like a good arrangement. And then that square opens out onto the cricket pitch. And what we want to do is to say that in certain modes that you can open up all the doors along here and you get a high level of daylight in this through clear story. And so the level of light in this space with the amphitheater is higher <coughs> than the level of light in this foyer space. And so the sense of this being a separate enclosure, which is what we think most theaters would be, is kind of dissolved. And then here where these doors are, they can all open out and there's a pergola over this terrace and so the sense that that space and that space are strongly communicating the sense of them being both contingent on the garden, although one of them is a theatre. And nested within these stone walls, we have great big five-metre-high timber doors which close over, which means that you can completely block that off and make it a dark theatre or completely open it up and make it a daylit theatre that feels as though it's in the garden. And in a sense, that's the idea of the project. Everything else is kind of contingent upon that idea. The dance studio here looks back down the lake. This is the courtyard I spoke about before. The bar here with some seminar rooms and this very simple stone enfilade of columns. 
And then that's the model showing you the same idea, that there's a kind of an implied pergola here, some of which is outside and actually is a pergola, and some of which is inside and makes a ceiling of that foyer. And within this space, you feel as though you're in a kind of a garden zone. For me, usually in projects like this, I have projects in my mind that I know that at some intuitive level, I want the building to feel like. And here I'm looking at two buildings, one by Carl Friedrich Schinkel in Charlottenhof, um, the Venetian garden building, and the other by Alvar Alto. I wanted to kind of conjure the spirit of those Alto plans where the form of the theatre becomes a strongly organic thing that throws off the otherwise fairly relaxed geometry of the orthogonal parts. And it was that idea that I wanted to try and play through in this plan. And then the theatre is allowed to rise up above that all. As you get in the university in Helsinki or in Wolfsburg or in many other of his, of his projects, that the theatre becomes this, this shape which is about acoustics and as though, it had, as though it had been found on a beach or something, that it's a shell-like form for listening, while everything else belongs to a more ordinary or orthogonal geometry of construction. And so this gives you the sense of what it might be like inside. These are the, the little sketches I did for the competition at the time, with the oak lattice and the ceiling coming through the building from that enclosed courtyard and finding your way through into, you can see the plan here on the computer. So you come in here, you're in this position, and you're finding your way through out into the gardens. And then there's a sense that this foyer is like an informal anti-space to the theater with these stone fins coming down here. And then just around, around the corner from that, where you're seeing the swerve of the theater here, you're able to look into it and see it stepping down with the daylight coming from a secret source. And then the sense of the oak lattice making its way through and people sitting like a cricket pavilion on the edge of the pitch. And then we explored that through the models. And you can see that that desire to make something that operates in the kind of world that I imagine that Alto would have thought about. I love those kind of scallop shells or Spanish fans. And we were looking at something that would operate acoustically as a sounding surface on a ceiling. And our, our idea really was that we would have a ceiling that's made of cast plaster, which has got very narrow, very deep elements which go over this section here. So that's that waste here. That's the stage, which is this. And then all of it flares back up to the clear story window here. And as it flares up, the depth of those members become thinner and thinner and thinner, so that although you can't see it in the paper thing, that ends up being a straight or a, a, a level line that follows the curve, while that's very deeply incised um, because it's going effectively like, like that. So this is the um, this is the form of the ceiling that we that, that 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 we developed in cast plaster. These are the different experiments to try and work that through and see how it would be made to work, and the way in which things like lighting and so on can be integrated into it, and the sense of it opening to this very, very fine edge. At the this is probably perhaps the closest to what we get, where it becomes a very, very fine edge at the perimeter, but it's very deeply scalloped in this position here. And so a CGI image just giving you a sense of what the auditorium would be like. Once you step into it, behind here is the foyer with the stone fins, but the stone rises above the level of the surrounding buildings, and then you have this very high clear story window and then the scallop ceiling then comes down, and we even have daylight coming through from little bits of the garden onto the stage. One of the seminar rooms looking out towards the cricket pitch with a very simple kind of Oxford formality. And a view uh, with the MJP building on the right-hand side um, and the building itself standing looking out over the cricket pitch. Looking a bit further down the lake and seeing the two buildings together, you can see the, the long enfilade here with a seminar room and a seminar room, 
columns carry through. The stone steps go up through the columns and we have a pergola here which takes you into the lower foyer and then rising above that we have the clear story of the, um, of the, of the theatre. And then in, in, in its, its pairing is with, is with Richard McCormack's beautiful building here. This is a CGI which was done at the competition stage, giving that sense. We had designed a chapel up at Cudston, which is about 10 miles from Oxford, using Clipsham stone. And we had discovered this kind of way of using what I would think of as a Victorian detail, which is a copy of a medieval detail, where you use stone as a glazing, as a glazing system. So although there's metal framed glazing within these windows, it's recessed completely into the stone. So you read the stone as being, as, 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 as being, as being the glazing member, and the glass then just runs into it. And it's only when you come around the back that you realize it's held within metal. Um, so we can see the lake here coming through. This is, this is Richard's building here. And then this is where the lake will be filled by the water. Just to give you a sense, sometimes on construction sites, you have moments when the building is beautiful in a way it will never be when it's, when it's finished. Perhaps this is one of my favorite moments. I mean, that's gone entirely now. But the sense of the steel structure, which is supporting that cast plaster ceiling, being like a little spider's web under the trees, uh, was a kind of a, an intermediate moment in the construction site that's been lost. And here's some sense at the moment of, of, of it being built. This was taken just about a week ago, I suppose, or a couple of weeks ago. They're about to take the hoarding down in the, in, in the next short while. And this will give you a sense. These are the rather unprepossessing buildings that I was speaking about. We're talking to the college about buying large quantities of Virginia creeper, just to let that all settle in a bit. Um, and then the building will stand with this very long and simple enfilade. And you can see the curve of the lecture theatre in the background. And so another project in Oxford was a competition which we won around the same time and which I see as being a kind of a twinned project in many ways. We developed them together, this rather beautiful existing quadrangle in an Oxford college. Um, and some cross college is a graduate college in Oxford. It's a very small college. And so the existing arrangement is a rather beautiful um, late Victorian church here, part of the Oxford movement, and a little monastery here which belongs to an Anglican order um, and um, then this side of it is this postgraduate college with its common room. The interesting thing about the college when we came is that all the rooms they have are north-facing, every single one of them. And so anything which we did on our bit, which is here, was going to make their world better because it would be south-facing or east or west-facing. So just getting rooms with sunlight was going to be an automatic benefit to them. Um, and so what we do is make a second quadrangle. And because the west window of this chapel is rather beautiful, we open up a courtyard here. And because the walls around here are ancient, we have to try and build the building off the older walls. And it's a very simple arrangement. You'll see it in a moment. But on the ground floor, we had the opportunity to make a little college and microcosm. It was very enjoyable. That's going to be a dining room uh, for formal dining. That's going to be a seminar room and teaching room. That's bicycle storage. That's a tiny lecture theater. Um, this is going to be a library. And that's a cafe. And the library comes around here. What we said is that all of these rooms, because they're going to be sunny, should form an enfilade that you can look through double doors here and here and here and here and there all the way through. So you get that sense of being able to walk through a suite of rooms on your way into the garden. It's quite interesting doing a number of Oxford colleges. The student housing typology is very... The moves that you can and can't make are in a way very, very tight. There have been so many of them done before by architects who couldn't hope to emulate, particularly in Oxford. 
And one of the things we did in the office was just to go to these amazing projects that we had kind of forgotten that people like Philip Dowson and um, Powell and Moyer and Richard McCormack, I mean, these terrific architects of an earlier generation who had solved these interesting problems and to try to understand what the DNA of the, of, of, of the project is. And to some extent, it's about a student being alone in their room in an Oxford college and having the privacy and the sense of being able to be away and be by yourself, but then having the confidence to move out from that point of isolation into a kind of a gradually amplifying set of communities which will bring you, you know, to the scale of a college and beyond the scale of a university. And so the kind of issues of sociability and community and loneliness, the bursars who you speak to in the colleges are very, very exercised about this. They say that so many of the problems they have as bursars are about these students who have moved away from home, extremely high expectations on them, who become isolated, who maybe are not, some of them are not necessarily the most sociable people, and that you need to have a way of building community around that. And it's a lovely architectural problem to have. Um, what we thought about, we, we looked at one of Philip Dowson's buildings, which was built in 1966 in relation to a government report on student loneliness. And he has an interesting idea. He said the, the window of the student room is the way in which that individual represents themselves as an entity to the rest of the college. And he became very interested in making these windows in a very deliberate way and allowing them to be windows that you could sit in. So you could, you could retreat back into your room and be private, but you could then move forward and sit in your window and be observed and observing. And so there was this possibility to think about the window as a threshold between you alone and you amongst folk. And this sketch here, which we did um, during the competition, I arrived up and it was pouring with rain, and Anne, my associate, and I just sat here for an hour watching the rain, and we did a little sketch, not as resolved as this, but of coming through between the two courtyards through this kind of 19th century Gothic arch into a new kind of architecture at the back that would pick up on some of the elements of the kind of stone tradition that we saw. And there was an interesting diagram here that we were able to describe during the competition how long someone has to walk from the front door of the college to get to anywhere on this kind of circumambient route. And we said if you could change the entrance to here, you get radial routes and you markedly shorten all the distances. So that's what the logic of that was. And the idea here of students sitting in windows with window benches in the garden, um, very simple and kind of natural landscaping, and being able to sit on the edge and the threshold of things and feel as though these are like little opera boxes that you can be in and look out into community. And we did a number of sort of iterations of this idea of kind of building up from the room as an atom into larger molecules. So the first thing is, when you walk out the door of your room here, there are automatically four doors in a slightly amplified space which you come into. And so you begin to identify yourself with the four people in those four rooms. And then one of those smaller molecules connects via a staircase and a kitchen to the next version of itself. So that's one, and that's one. And as you arrive up the staircase, you see the kitchen. So people who've come out of their rooms and who are in a semi-sociable state automatically encounter people as they arrive up the stairs. And so it's this little building up of connections. And what tends to happen also is that if the four people in this room know each other because they're connected by that space, there's another staircase and another kitchen there. So that group of people know each other because they share the same stair and kitchen. And that group of people know each other because they share the four doors. And so you're building up these little strong bonds and connections 
between sociable spaces. And then that gives you a set of blocks. So one of those is one of those. And um, we had built a building that necessarily had to have a long corridor for another Oxford college. And I came into the competition and said, I do not want corridors in this building. You know, the, the Oxford set, the staircase with doors offered, is my model of sociability. And Mark Jones, who's a master of this college, said, you're wrong. Mathematically, you must be wrong. And he challenged me at the competition interview and said, logically, you must have to walk more doors, pass more doors on a corridor than you have to walk on a staircase. And it was quite an interesting taught discussion. But what we ended up doing was saying that these staircases here, which vertically connect the building, then have these corridors which laterally connect the building. And the corridor always changes direction and stops when it meets the stair. So you get the zigzagging through the plan. And so it's like snakes and ladders. You can go up or across. And it means that your opportunities to move through the building in different diagonal routes are amplified. And then the little kitchens themselves are gaps between these blocks. And we wanted to express them as spaces where people, six people could have a little dinner party or pasta and look out and feel as though they're part of the world of a college. And that's what this sketch is here about. And then the ground floor beneath these rooms, we transfer the cellular structure of the rooms away. We have these vaulted ceilings over the individual rooms beneath. And that gives you your enfilade. And so a student room is about this corner window, which has got the desk in it, and you can look out from your desk. And I'm fascinated by how architects turn corners. And it's a, there's a suite of projects that we're doing at the moment, which is about using the, the corner member, and rather than doing that and that, is to turn the corner member on a diagonal. So it's highly visible when you look at it from the outside, but almost completely invisible when you look at it from the inside. And this was the model on how we base the room. And that this place here with a little desk to put your keys down or your bag before you open the door, that there's then a buffer zone of storage and... Is that me? Uh, there's a, a buffer zone of storage and loose and so on. And then you have this larger room with its window. And so you can retreat into the back of the room and be quiet. Or you can move out into the window and feel as though you're part of the, 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 the space of the garden. And this is the sketch that I did that was really trying to embody that idea of the built-in furniture at the edge of the room and the sense that you can move out into this space. And I like the idea that you can look straight out, and this is a fixed window, but if I open that window there, that I'm not very far from my neighbor's window, and you can get a bit of flirting going on between rooms. I think that's a, that's a, that's a key part of it. And then the idea that at the top of the stairs itself, you have this glass screen that takes you into the kitchen. And at great length, we persuaded the college that these could be double-height spaces. So the sort of formality that I remember moving to London when I'd graduated and moving into a shared house with six people. And it was just fantastic for us all to sit and eat dinner in the evening and have conversations. And I love the idea that the kind of, you learn that, that independent sociability through those kind of arrangements. And so above this, on the upper level, there's a tea point with a little place to perch. But as soon as you get out into the edge, this zone here with its glass wall and its glass roof becomes a kind of double height conservatory, which can be used for that, that scale of sociability. And perhaps that's the image that I had that I was dreaming of, of a big bowl of pasta and a salad and a cheap bottle of wine, um, and the idea that you could sit there with a glass roof and, 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 and sit in this kind of little sheltered space between these stronger stone mullions, but feel as though you're looking out, like your little opera box, looking out into the college garden. And then on the ground floor, the transfer structure is turned into a kind of a delicately vaulted ceiling, and all the rooms are lined with books and window seats. And so you get this kind of collection of rooms that are connected together at the ground floor. 
This was, once again, one of the early sketches at the very early stage in the project. And this is the idea of the deep window revealed I was, that I'm kind of currently interested in, that the depth of the wall is really, really pushed to make that window revealed as deep as possible. And then, and, then, and, and, and then you get the glass sitting back within a very deep reveal. A view from the Georgian street nearby of what we thought that would be like on the outside with this stone, uh, old ancient stone wall that we had to build above, the simple eclipsium stone of the walled enclosure, and then using precast concrete to make all of these window mullions. Um, and it gives you this sense of repeating bays of precast concrete, quite deeply cut windows. And then this is it taken just a week ago and ago on site, you can get a sense the wall hasn't quite been exposed yet, but you get that sense of the combination between the precast and the stonework here. Um, and that deeply cut window at the 45 degree angle, which then gives you this little collection of beehives. And that's a view from the laneway behind. I'm, I'm sorry, it was a very wet day, but you get some sense of the way in which the depth of the wall is being explored. And then looking down, down the lane, the, 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 the builders are still doing it. Um, I'm afraid I got an email today saying they've just gone out of business, but uh, that's, uh, that's another problem. Um, uh, the stone wall and the precast concrete here, um, and the hoarding is about to come down, um, and then you'll get the rough stone wall at the base. And that was the CGI which we did for the competition at the time. So this is a student sitting outside a room looking towards the garden and the ground floor enfilade of rooms. And then each of these is a student room with a corner window. And you can see the way that these stack together into different aggregations. But that simple molecule I gave you at the beginning of four doors with four student rooms around it is expressed by that. And the gap is where you have the double height dining rooms. And then there's another molecule, and we've great fun turning the corner, and then we've two more. So you build up an aggregation of these units. And then that's a photograph recently just taken on site, giving you the sense about the way in which, when we look at these windows straight on, it's all glass. But when you look at them side on, that you already get the, the stacking up of the depth of the stone, and, or the depth of the precast in the construction. And we're just putting in these very basic plywood desks at the moment, it's one of those things that happened at a project. We had uh, Historic England, the Conservation Officer, the Planners, the Design Review Panel all gave it excellent reviews. And then the local residents persuaded the Planning Committee to turn it down. So we went into appeal for nine months. And between inflation and the cost of the appeal, we completely lost the value out of all of these units. In a way, it was a nonsense appeal. The project had been approved by absolutely everybody and was eventually passed at appeal. But in those situations, you just have to take the money out of the project somewhere. And so our desks, which would have been very rich timber, are now very simple plywood. And we're looking here at the CGI of what that corner will be when you come out of a lecture theatre with an enfilade of rooms looking in that direction with the cafe and the library and an enfilade of rooms in this direction. The point is they can all be used as closed rooms uh, if you're studying or dining, but if you're having an event or a big lecture or a party, then you can just open all the doors between them and it becomes an open plan space across the ground floor. And then there's a photograph taken relatively recently. You need to squint a little bit, but that's the same enfilade there. That's the, the diagonal view there. You can just see our vaulted ceilings beginning to emerge in this position. And you'll, you'll get that sense of the diagonal of the garden. We had an amazing moment where we found this girl when we were, when we were building. And the students used to sit on that piece of grass and she was only two feet beneath them. And uh, she had coins in her eyes she was beautifully shrouded, and she had coins in her eyes dated 1642. So that's when Oxford would have been besieged during the Civil War. And obviously she had been buried with ceremony by people who loved her. 
but she wasn't buried in a consecrated graveyard. It would have been a back garden. And so the archaeologists have been, this is, this is the coins that they found in her eyes. Um, the, the archaeologists have been looking at her, but the students have really taken to her because they feel that they were studying in her company for many years and just didn't know it. And then the CGI is just looking at the inside, uh, the, the, these rendered images looking at the inside of what the library would be like, for example. And here it is at the moment. And then that's the overview of looking down into that courtyard as it stands. And that sense that the individual molecules with their sort of pavilions on top will give a kind of aggregation of identity to the project. And here it is sitting in the Oxford Lanes. So the next project I want to talk about is a little bit closer. It's in Hampshire. And it was an amazing commission. Um, it's one we were a bit cheeky about, to be honest with you, because we received an invitation to do a competition for a house. And six architects were going to be asked to do a full competition. And um, one of the things in the brief said, we want our architect to work with us, not for us. And so I waited for a while, and then I sent back my competition entry, which was a letter, which, in which I said, if you want me to work with you and not for you, then why are you running an architectural competition? Because I have the building design before I ever get to know you. And I'll just tell you a little bit about the site, first of all, before I move on. It's the River Itchen, or the River Arl, which is by the Itchen, and these wonderful streams, chalk bottom streams, where you see this ranunculus and you see these trout lying above the, the, the chalk in the water. And all of these have been developed into little lakes for fish farms. But before that, the original stream had been diverted into carrier streams. So that's the original stream, and that's a carrier stream that's been taken off, off at about a mile up there. And they would water these meadows, which are all around the site. You have these very ancient lines of trees that go back to the 12th century. And here, just in the corner, there's a little cottage that was built in the 80s. That's um, very uninteresting. The client had bought the cottage, and then they'd bought the wood, and they'd bought the fish farms, and they'd kind of accumulated this estate. What they wanted to do was to use it for their family and to, to, to take these parcels of land and make them into a coherent landscape. And so what we did was, rather than showing them architectural designs, um, I just took my sketchbook out and did drawings like this, the ranunculus and the trout lying over the chalk on the stream. The, braid, the braiding of the rivers, the idea that there was a sense that this place had that you could draw before you would start designing. And this extraordinary thing, which is called the early bite, because the water in the chalk bottom streams comes from the aquifer, it's always about 10 degrees centigrade, which means that it's much warmer than the landscape in winter and much cooler than the landscape in summer. So in February, what they do is they use the carrier streams to flood the whole landscape. And so they thaw the frost much earlier with this warm water that comes from the chalk. And then they get three growing cycles rather than two. And so the management of that landscape for watercress meadows, for grazing and so on, that there was, a, there was a real kind of basic grain that the landscape had that we were able to explore in these sketches. And so this was our competition entry. We were lucky that the client had an aversion to CGIs. So the other five that she saw, she didn't like at all. But these sketches somehow had a sense of openness that they could connect with. Um, and I was fascinated by Katsura Palace, this plan of Katsura Palace, which I absolutely love, which is Katsura Palace in Kyoto, if you don't know, the Imperial Palace. And it's this kind of the epitome of the Japanese romantic landscape tradition with this wonderful wandering serpentine lake and these tea pavilions positioned between them. And at the center, the main palace building, which has got this beautiful plan, which is this corner, corner, 
corner, corner. It looks very ordinary in this plan, but if you could remember photographs of it, these are absolutely serene pavilions linked on this 45 degree angle. And I've always wanted to do a plan like that, to play that kind of water against that kind of corner, and then to throw pavilions out around the water. And this was our opportunity. And so the site that we made was to take all of these lakes and say that there would be a little pavilion down here, which we call the fishing hut. Pardon me? Did someone call me? Okay. Uh, a, little, a little fishing hut in this position here, which is where the family used to picnic when they, when they discovered the site, first of all. Um, and to make that the place on the water, which would be closed in the winter, but open for the fishing season. And then back up in this corner here, where the existing cottage is, that we would make a house. And the clients were fantastic, because the first thing they'd been advised to do when they bought the site was to take the gateway here and build a road from the gateway through all of their land, all the way up to here, to where their house would be. And so they did it, they built the road. And then they appointed me and I said, I don't like that decision. I want you to come in at this end of the site and then all of this is private. So instead of being your front garden, it's your back garden. And they were terrific. They took the road away and they grassed it over and the road would be gone completely. Um, and it must have been, um, I mean, it's, 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 it's functioning for the builders now, but it's, it's, its purposeful life was probably about three months. Um, and what we said is that this, gar this building here would be, because there's an existing lane here, but this would be a way of coming down a steep hill, down, down, down to the side. And then once again, that idea of the building as being a gateway building to an experience of nature, that it becomes a thing that screens you from the side. And you have to make your way through the building. And as you make your way through the building, you discover the site. And then you open out into this, in, in, into this kind of idyllic version of nature. And we made this drawing here based on a kind of um, the Kano scrolls we had seen in Japan this huge long drawing. You can see the lakes here and this water world. And everybody, Joanne who made this drawing in the office, she just goes around to everybody in the office and says, draw me a tree. Because she says, if all the trees are drawn by the same person, they won't really feel like trees. So there's a really kind of deeply drawn way in which this digital thing is made. But it's a planimetric drawing which is showing the lane coming down to the house, um, coming, coming through the wood, finding yourself in this enclosed court and then coming through, and there is the step from Katsura there, these open pavilions that look diagonally down to this water world. So it's a way of coming through solidity and density and enclosure into these open watery pavilions that open diagonally out into the landscape. And then at the bottom of the landscape here, the view from this house just goes around the corner, and at the moment that that view disappears and you couldn't see any more, there's a little timber fishing hut here. And the fishing hut was the first thing we built. There it is, just as the view goes around the corner. And it was quite interesting. Once again, they were working on the land when they appointed us, and they had drained the lake, and they were about to refill it in two weeks' time. And they said, we want you to build a building there, Neil, but you haven't got time to design it, so could you just design the foundations and then work out what to do later on? So we put the foundations in the bottom of the lake, and then they filled the lake, and it was only about two and a half years later that we got to design the building, and we had to hope that the foundations would work. But this was the idea of the, of the main house, that the, the solid bit of it, which is against the wall of the trees, is made entirely from flint um, and stone. And all of the corners are coined with stonework. And that tradition that you have in Hampshire of using flint as a walling material and using stone to kind of robustly make the edges and the corners. And so we have this kind of, what I would call stereotomic construction, primitive stuff piled up to make deep walls at the back. And then this trabeated construction, this kind of table-like construction, 
which is all made of precast concrete. And we play the stone and the precast concrete and the flint off each other. And then these open corners are the things that allow you to open out towards the landscape. And the plan of the building here, arriving from the upper part down this lane. Uh, as a child, I used to go down in County Wexford in Ireland. They had these lanes that were completely covered over by trees. They're like hollowways. And we wanted to design this so that in about five years' time, you'll feel like you're coming through a tunnel of trees to get down into the building. And that the wall on this side is completely flint. And it's cobbled in flint. And the trees on this side are growing over. So you come through this tunnel and emerge out into this room made by trees on the edge of the landscape. And directly in front of you is the way into the house. To your right, all the gubbins, the housekeepers, the garages, the, the, the plant rooms, uh, the, the games room, um, the utility rooms, and so on. The line of the trees is carried by this large flint object, which contains the swimming pool with the stairs at one end. And you come into a gap between this flint wall and these precast concrete tables, these three framed pavilions. You come into this gap and you make your way diagonally down into the rooms of the house or back into the sort of the cave, uh, the, the, the sort of built into the hill bit. And in the center of the plan, in the pinwheel, we have the kitchen, which is treated like those old medieval kitchens as a double height space, which operates as an atrium for the rest of the house. So you can see down into the kitchen from all the parts of the house. And so you have this kind of processional route. And what happens is because the ceiling height here is constant, but the ground drops away, this room is three meters, this is 3.6 meters, and that's 4.2 meters. So the relative formality of this drawing room, family room, snug, the relative formality of difference is given by the ground dropping away under a constant ceiling. And so I see I've shown you that image before, that's that one. And then this is giving you a sense of the way that the architecture is built up. The precast, once again, this idea of the corner column rotated at 45 degrees, which is our little idee fix at the moment in the office. And within that precast frame, these oak screens, which are naturally weathered oak. Um, and the frame can sit back to give you covered terraces on the ground floor, stone chimneys projecting up from that, and then the large flint-walled backdrop, which is like a great big kind of monumental curtain of flint against which these pavilions sit. So that's a photograph taken from the sample panel that we're just working on on site at the moment, with the flint and the, and the, and, and the stone coming together. Uh, to, to give you this, this relationship between semi-coarse flint and the coins. On the construction site itself, we can get a bit of a sense of the baggy character of that flint on a very wet day. And that's the road which will become the Holloway. That the way, this is the, the blank side of the building that gives all the privacy. This is the road that will become the covered way down to the rest of the house. That's a sense of the flint wall with stone coining, a really primitive kind of baggy quality that we wanted to have. And the space between the flint walls where there's a little staircase that goes up. Um, we can see here when you come around, you've just come around the corner of that lane here and you're arriving into that courtyard. The entrance to the house is here and the whole flint wally bit is on this side and the whole pavilion bit is on this side. And then this is the sense you get also of the untreated oak frames sitting within the precast concrete. So the depth of the floor and the depth of the roof are taken by the precast. These fins come forward to frame the different rooms. And then you have a combination of oak shutters and large glazed oak windows. This is the dining room. And then this is the entrance into the house. And beyond that, you can just see the skylights coming down into that big double height space, which is a kitchen.
And then this is a sense of these step pavilions that are being built at the moment, the end of the swimming pool, which is a flint wall, and then these three steps, but they're 45-degree diagonals on the precast concrete. And you can just get a little bit of a sense here of the ground dropping away, and so that ceiling datum stays absolutely constant, but the rooms get, 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 get taller and taller as they increase in formality. And then that's the sense of the whole aggregation and its relationship to the lake. So that's taken from the fishing hut looking back at the house, and those are the precast elements that will be the pavilions with the big wall in the background. So it gives you a more intuitive sense of the diagonal relationship between these stepped pavilions and the serpentine nature of the water space. These are the wooden shutters from the inside looking out. And then that's one of the rooms which is looking down towards the, the fishing hut is just around the corner here. So that's one of those rooms. Uh, but what's interesting, I suppose, for me is that that precast concrete, which is so evident on the outside, is almost complete, because that's your 45-degree corner mullion. It's almost completely invisible to you when you're inside the building. And then the whole of the ceiling inside is oak joists and so on. And you can see this braiding, all of these different streams braiding together to make this water world, which they're looking onto. And uh, I'm sorry, these are all construction site photographs, but it gives you a bit of a sense of what the, what the scale of that is going to be. And then the fishing hut itself, it was quite interesting when you've got a commission to build a substantial new country house, but you have to build a little fishing hut first, and you'd better not muck it up. Um, and um, so uh, John, who is the client, his father was a joiner, is extremely interested in, in, in oak and, 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 and uh, the sort of craftsmanship and making and the use of uh, crafted materials. And he wanted to make a really substantial piece of joinery. It's not easy making oak over water. It's very lively when you put it in humid conditions. Um, and one of the problems that they had is that they wanted the building to be something which is completely closed out of the fishing season. It's an agricultural shed. It stores boats and fishing rods, and it needs to just keep itself and maintain its own internal conditions and be very secure um, during the winter. But in summertime, it becomes part of this extraordinary set of uh, water activities, and therefore it wants to be as open as possible. And our simple idea, which we borrowed... I have to say, I, I, Glenn Merkett is the first person I saw doing it on this wonderful little, little hut for Aboriginals in the north of Australia. But I think he was looking back at Paul Rudolph, who made an extremely beautiful building in the 1950s as a beach pavilion. And the simple idea is that when the pavilion is closed, it's got wooden shutters, and then you hinge those shutters up, and it becomes completely open. And so the whole of the joinery here is about making that solid wall completely disappear in summertime. And it does two things. The solid panels flip up and have to hold themselves here. And then all the glass panels slide away and have to do as much as they can to stack invisibly and disappear. And the whole thing is built on a timber frame. And I had said to the office, I wanted, at one stage we were looking at the idea of that, that great Indian architect, is it Methru, you probably know Robert, who, who had this house with balls where it was done with these great big concrete counterweights. Because the difficulty of getting an oak shutter to go all the way up like that is that it's got to track up absolutely precisely and it can't just fall down because the weight of it could potentially kill somebody. And so the issues around, the, I mean, the, what, what he did in India, you could just never, never do in the UK. It would be far too dangerous. And so there were a number of issues around it. We tried about 20 ways of trying to make this happen. Eventually the building went to tender, it went on site, and we still hadn't made it happen. And the, and, and the, the, the fail-safe was that we would just have open wooden shutters that would open like doors. But eventually we found these pistons which allowed us to do it. Because the trick was that with the oak being very open to movement, that you had to be able to keep it completely rigid while you raised it up. And technically that was a very exacting problem. 
And the plan of it's very simple. An entrance deck. The thing is symmetrical with an enclosure in the middle. It's an entrance deck. You come into a little lobby here with a loo on your left. If you come around that, the same thing has got a tiny kitchen here, which opens onto a dining table, which looks back at the carrier stream. Then there's a space here that you can sit and contemplate and be in a pavilion. And then this whole space here is about boats and getting them in and out of the water. So that's a glass wall. And then the floor here comes up. You can raise the floor of this, so you can take a boat into it and hoist the, floor, the boat straight into the ceiling without having to um, muck about with it. So the way in which the rafters can be used to lift the boat out of the water. And then here there's just an open shower, an outdoor shower, that if you choose to go for a swim, that's what you can do. And at the end of that, there's a deck. So in terms of the function, the plan is relatively complex, but we wanted it to be very, very simple in section, that it feels almost like a temple. And um, my students had um, just gone to Japan on their field trip, and I couldn't go because my daughter had been born, and I was really not very happy. Um, so I thought, well, if I can't go to Japan, I'll bloody well bring Japan to me. <laughs> and it was one of those kind of slightly cussed things that all of the things that I like about Japanese architecture, um, I wanted to try and concentrate into this building. But the other thing was that a lot of the buildings we had done, and I wanted to do a building that felt to me as though it had no decisions that related to virtuosity at all. I wanted it to be as ordinary as it could possibly be. And I sort of had this thing at the design sessions that it couldn't look as if you had tried to do anything to please anybody in the building. It had to look like a proper agricultural building, as though ordinary people with a plain spirit had made a simple enclosure to do what they needed to do. And that lack of virtuosity became a kind of byword for this project for us. That everything had to look like the sort of thing that a really plain spirited carpenter would have made for themselves. Um, and the, the, the simple section is this simple timber roof, uh, simple trusses over it, glue lamb oak structures, uh, 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 sh shutters in between, a small stall riser that you can sit on at the edge, and then the most complex bit, which is this huge shutter that opens up here that allows you to get out to the boats. That's a simple elevation in which the whole thing resolves itself into a relatively symmetrical form of organisation, the land being on that side and the water on this side. With these long gutters, we wanted to do away with rainwater pipes and just let the water flow away into the side. And that's it, that's it standing on the lake as it, as, as it was complete. It's in its open mode there because you can, see, you can see through it. But that's the sort of presence that we wanted to have, this kind of very simple timber barn or temple in the water. We spent a long time trying to find a form of timber that we could use here, but eventually we decided to have galvanized steel. Um, I'm hoping that the oak will eventually end up looking much more like the roof and the galvanized steel because it will weather away. And one of the things that we discussed at an early stage was in a sort of an aesthetic effect that we wanted to have, which is that at some time in the future, the building on the outside would be completely gray but we put a tiny groove into the edge of the timber shutters to stop water from tracking back through the reveal. And then on the inside, we just slightly lacquered them with a warm gold. And I had this kind of image of John, the client, rowing across the lake to his fishing hut and then opening the shutters. And it's, it's that thing of the, the kind of gorgeous gold of the oak is always held on the inside because it doesn't get wet and it doesn't get UV light. And so it goes completely gray on the outside and the roof is gray and the walls are gray, but suddenly you get this thing that rises up when the shutters open and you get this reflection of the gold in the water. I don't know if it'll happen. We'll have to wait a number of years to see, but that's the intention. 
So you can see the elevation of the building here. This is the warmth of the timber before it started to go. But if you went there now, it's already looking more like that than that, which is that the, 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 it's graying up quite nicely. But the inside is holding that warmth. And then that's it when it opens up completely that you see right through the building. So the, the glass doors have, have slid away and the shutters have opened up. You can see them in this position here. And you're just in this kind of water world. And um, you can see these relatively simple struts that were used to do it and the, the simple gaps between the planks. That gives you a sense of it in its fully opened mode. And then these, these are, in a sense, in terms of the plain spirited technique, I was quite happy to end up with these because what they do is they structurally support it. They stop it from ever dropping. And it means that there's no torsion or twisting introduced into the shutter as it's being lifted because the mechanism lifts it up extremely rigidly like that. So as a technical outcome, we were still testing these shutters when the building was due for practical completion in two weeks. But they have worked very well. Um, and then you get this simple glue lamp structure in between. sense of it in its winter mode and then that's that very plain spirited 45 degree angles robust chunky timber members uh, the only thing that looks slightly artful I have to say was an accident which is this slightly zany gutter and the reason it ended up like that was when the gutter came out as a rectangle it was slapping around in the wind and the builder came up with this good idea of just cutting it away which means that it doesn't flap anymore but still does its job I've shown you so many building sites, I thought I might linger on a few finished photographs of something. This is the shower which I borrowed from Pete Stutchbury. I went to see a house of his in Australia, and I thought, I'll have that shower, it's fantastic. It's just made out of pipes, sort of brought together, and then you just put a shower head on top of the pipes with these kind of sort of fire engine, sort of red and blue plastic um, mechanical bits. So it was really as simple as it could possibly be. And that's our projecting gutter here with its cutout section to stop it flapping about. You can just begin to see in that image there what the oak is starting to do, and hopefully that'll all go pretty soon and turn into a grey structure. And that's it looking out across the lake, and there it's in its evening time mode. And another shuttered building that kind of came from that, we were looking at them at the same time, and this is perhaps the last one I'll talk about this evening, is um, a really interesting commission that we've got in the north of England up in County Durham. Uh, these three paintings here are extraordinary. They're part of a suite of 12 uh, of the 12 tribes of Israel, the, the sons of Jacob. And they were painted by Zerberan, who's um, uh, a Spanish uh, counter-reformation artist. And it's very difficult to know why at the time of the Spanish Inquisition, when the Jews were being expelled from Spain, he was commissioned to make these extraordinary full-height, full life-size portraits of the nobility and dignity of the Jewish people. However, Whatever happened to them, we don't know, but they were sent off on a treasure ship to Brazil where they disappeared from history. They never arrived. 
There are all sorts of stories about what might have happened to them. And for 200 years, they disappeared from history and then cropped up in an auction house in London at the beginning of the 19th century. At the time, the issue, the political issue about Catholic uh, emancipation and Jewish naturalization was, was very current. And the Bishop of Durham thought the thing to do was to buy these paintings and to line his dining room with them so he could regale his um, guests with um, parables about the equality and dignity of all religions. So it's a lovely, a lovely project. And he, um, this was his, his castle, the, 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 the bishop's castle here. And uh, it goes back to the 10th century. And during the time of William the Conqueror, um, when the North was in revolt, uh, he made the bishops into bishops palatinate, which means that they were um, condottieri as well as bishops. They had this kind of martial role to raise armies and keep the northerners and the Scots in their place. And uh, so for a very long time, you had this palatinate up in County Durham where the bishop was both a secular military power and also the sort of religious power. And the history of the castle is absolutely extraordinary through that. It's an amazing site on a promontory over the River Weir with a great Roman fort up at Binchester here. So it, it, its history in terms of the, 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 the history of the north is, is spectacular and extremely interesting. And what happened to the paintings was that the bishops were going to move out of the, the palace and they were selling the paintings. And a single individual, Jonathan Ruffer, um, said he would buy the paintings if he could also buy the castle. And he's turning the castle into a, a museum of religious faith. And he's building an art gallery in the town, uh, re re refurbishing the bank to make an art gallery. He's building a hotel, um, a Michelin-starred restaurant. Um, these gardens have got a, a cafe by the Japanese architect Seiji Ma. Uh, we're doing a building here and here, and we're doing, we did a master plan for the whole site, and all of these gardens will be renovated. And through that, what we did was to, um, this is an amazing sort of setting of the castle, um, with this kind of amphitheater of woodland around this promontory, and views out to the river into the woodland. Um, and what we did was to uh, look at making a plan for the whole castle. But, I mean, in a sense, a lot of the castle is this sort of rather genteel Georgian interpretation of kind of a Gothic martial spirit. Um, a lot of the really substantial fortified bits of it have been lost over history. And you have this extraordinary throne room with portraits of all the bishops who have been in it back to the year dot. Um, and so our idea was that you would take uh, the square here in the marketplace and extend it right through into a great parade that would link the bishop's old road from Durham and make a processional route from the town through to the throne room here. And along that route, you would make a kind of an armature off which different events would occur. I'm not going to take you through all of it, but it was interesting working with Historic England that what we did was to say that we would show every representation we could find of the castle over time and talk about how the social history and the social understanding of the role of the church and the relationship of the bishop and the people could be explored through these paintings. So here's the time when the bishop was still in martial mode and protecting England from the Scots. For some reason that's paused on me now. I've got a little note here that you haven't got. Let's see what it says. Okay. I'll try again. And then we move to the 18th century where the castle has suddenly turned into a gentle landscape setting with parkland. And then what was quite interesting was that the gateway, which now looks like the gateway to the castle, was actually built to screen the castle from the town so the bishop could arrive into Durham and not mix too much with Hoi Polloi. You can see the, the bishop turning into the castle here and never, never passing through the town at all. But suddenly in the 19th century, you begin to see for the first time the, 
the town and the castle together, and the countryside is full of folk picnicking. They're obviously having some great event, and here is the castle and the town in the background. And eventually, in the 20th century, the postcards start showing the town property for the first time, and there's that gate we saw from the other side, but now you're seeing the castle as though it's an adjunct to the town, rather than vice versa. And so we use this in a long negotiation with historic England uh, to talk about ways in which we might provide more public access to the castle. Uh, this beautiful drawing here is showing all of the constructions that were built that are now completely lost over the thousand-year history, all laid over each other. So we can see the existing buildings in relation to the ghost of all their predecessors. And then our plan here for this grand parade, which takes you through from the square to the castle. And we proposed two buildings that we would build, a welcome building here for tickets and arrival and orientation, and uh, an extension to the castle itself for a museum of religious faith. And then I think this is where the art gallery is, and this is where the cafes and the garden are. And the gardens themselves will be curated with different garden designers coming in. Some of these gardens are from the early medieval period, the later medieval period, the 17th century, and so on. Um, and then this is what Sejima is up to. She's doing all these kind of interesting bucky balls in the garden, uh, yet to see how they'll turn out. Um, and then the site that we have here that I want to talk about is the Welcome Building. And I was really interested, and it's a, what I was lecturing about last night when I was talking about the more theoretical aspect of her work, that work. I'm interested in the loss of the figurative aspect of architecture, that architecture now feels that its responsibility is to tell truths about the building itself, truth to materials or truth to structure or truth to function. While in the past, buildings told public parables, they spoke about their community and their society and the place of that society in the world. And this is one of the projects we're doing, which we're trying to make a much more figurative interpretation of what a building can be. Here's the site. It's very simple, quite a tricky site to deal with. We have this important Georgian gateway here and the town square. We've done lots of traffic coming to get rid of that chicane. And one of the things we discovered is there had once been this extraordinary tower near that site. And we use that to persuade historic England that it might be possible to just talk about them, talk to them about the possibility of a tower. And it was an interesting dialogue because at the beginning they said to us, you are not going to have a tower on this site. And at the end, after a year of negotiation, they were saying, can we just make the tower a little bit taller? Because I think that'll... And that wasn't just pure persuasion. In fact, it was one of the nicest collaborations I've done with a group of people. And I found more and more working with Historic England that the caliber of people who are working with them are extraordinarily good to work with on projects in sensitive areas. We were working here with uh, going back into the deep history of the church in the northeast of England. The whole idea at the Middle Ages about how timber construction stood for regional identity. Stone construction stood for Romanitas. There were philosophical and ethical and religious ideas that were bound into what the building was made from at all. And we are here having a discussion with the planning officers and the people from historic England saying, can we have this great tower? And in the background, we have a painting on the wall with a great tower. That's why I like this picture. Um, but the, the key turning point of this project was when our idea of having a stone tower, uh, they said, if it's a stone tower, it'll look like the castle is looking down on the town. And so I showed this, I brought this image up from Viole le Duc, which is about medieval fortification, and said, well, what about the, the building? The castle is already a fantasy of fortification. What if we make our tower a kind of fantasy of incursion and make it like a siege engine? So this image of the siege engine being pushed up to the wall of the castle and giving the sense of the people being able to come into the castle from the outside. 
And this set of models here, each one of these is an attempt at a tower. And I like this photograph because there are 13 attempts at a tower lying around the walls of the castle as though it's the end of a battle where we've been seen off. Uh, but eventually we were given uh, consent to move ahead with this. And so the des our design completely changed through that process. And we had at the edge of the castle the possibility of this great tower that would allow people to look down and actually understand the relationship between the castle and its landscape. And the idea is that this tower, with its little courtyard here, its, its entrance and tower here, its kind of market hall structure here, and its single-story loose and buggy store here. Very simple plan. But the idea is that it's a kind of a figurative introduction to the history of the whole landscape. Um, and you can see its section here with the tall building with a viewing gallery here, and this hall, which is full of exhibits, which are about the history of the landscape and the social history about the landscape, the people and the castle. And we discovered all of these amazing representations of old timber churches that you can no longer know except through their representations. And we love the sort of heraldic quality of these illustrations of now lost building structures. And so we began to think about a way in which that sort of heraldry, that sort of frank and almost naive heraldry, could be used in our building. And this is the, the restoration imitation of medieval heraldry that you get in the castle. And so our building has a simple structure. The, the hall itself, you can see the tower here with the viewing gallery. And the hall itself has got these closed timber shutters. You've seen them in the previous building. And um, when they open up, They've got enamel panels on the inside, and each of the enamel panels is telling stories about the history of the castle. And so you know when the castle is open because it's like flags hanging out from the edge of the building. And we want to use the kind of graphic language that you get in these books of ours, the Tre Richard of Henry VIII, this beautiful graphic language that we think that you could make lovely drawings in enamel, and they would become part of the building, and each one would talk about a thousand years of the castle and the landscape. And we began to make this drawing ourselves to talk about the kind of language we'd like these drawings to have. And so here's our building, which is, an, it, it's, it's shutters opal, open, and it's enamel panels hanging out. And then the tower here with the view out over the castle. This is the other building we're doing, which I haven't time to talk about this evening. And the sense of this kind of enchanted garden within the castle. And this apron of ground, which is being brought in from the town to connect the town to the rest of the castle. Um, and this model, which we made at a larger scale, showing the enamel panels in a day when they're open. We borrowed the floor tiles, by the way, from Winchester Cathedral, these lovely sort of floor tile patterns you find in the medieval floors. And it was, many of you might know Labrousse Library, where he has the writing on the walls. All the names of all the authors on the inside are on the walls, as though it's a bookcase. So this idea of the building and the book, we've got our, our illustrated panels here. And then in gold on the lower walls, we've got written descriptions of each of the aspects of what's on the panels and seats where you can sit and look at them. And the old mining town, which it is, has got, already got this kind of vernacular of timber architecture that we could use. And so this is the model that we made uh, showing the, the hall, the panels, and the timber tower. Looking from the town. So the stage this project is at at the moment is we got the tenders back. The first tenders I got back below budget for about 10 years or for eight, eight years. So it's really terrific. We've got that on budget now and it's looking like it's going to go to site very soon. And the same people who made the fishing hut in wood design are going to make the whole timber structure. And then these are just little simple CGI's to show how robustly and sort of primitively the whole thing is going to be made. And that's standing down in the courtyard when you've come back and you've done your tour of the castle and you're waiting for everybody to come back, you can stand down in the courtyard and look up at the tower. We had great fun with the planners in Historic England because we had to persuade them that there was a view. 
So we got this cherry picker and stuck it up in the air. It was an absolutely terrifying experience going up into that. Some of the planners were already shaken afterwards because once you, once you put that 30 meters up in the air, it moves around far more than you would expect. But you get a view like this looking around the town and the perimeter of the castle and way over there in the distance you get the, fort, the Roman fort of Winchester. And so this is what we're going to be looking down upon in due course. And what we wanted to do is, as you look at the real view, you can also look down uh, from the tower into the courtyard beneath it and get this other thing, like the medieval cathedrals, that the whole of the landscape will be drawn as an abstract map on the ground. So you can look down onto the paving of the courtyard, watch your children run around, but also realize that that thing you can see in the distance is that object there or that object there or so on. So that's that project. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, um, Neil, for a fantastic lecture. And um, it was nice to be reminded of um, Matharu briefly. Um, and it reminds me, you know, generally of your, you know, of your generosity. You often come down to Bath to give lectures, and um, and you also share your ideas. And you've mentioned Pete Stutchbury and Matharu and uh, um, Rick Joy and a number, a number of other people. And I'm wondering if you could just talk briefly about um, the exchange of ideas between maybe that group or an, another group of architects whose work isn't necessarily the same, but you, you, you share ideas very openly. Well, I could talk about that group in a way, but I suppose I'd like to make a more general point. Uh, one of the things I said at the lecture I gave last night was I described a day where um, I had been up at Worcester College and I had seen this document written by Hawksmoor and Clark about the building they had designed for Worcester College. And everything in the document was showing how every single bit of the building came from other buildings in history. Yeah. And it was apparent that the architects needed, in order to give authority to their design, to show that every element of the design could be argued from historic precedent. And I don't think they were doing it out of generosity. I think they were doing it in order to validate their own designs. And that evening, I went down to the RBA and they had the gold medal lecture, and Peter Zumter was speaking. And at the end of it, I asked him three times about his relationship with the canon, and I just kept asking him, and he kept saying that he didn't look at the work of other architects at all, and that even if he did, it wasn't something that affected his work in any way, that his work came from the origins of personal embodied experience that came from his own life, from his own autobiography. Mm. And it seemed to me that, putting issues of generosity aside, that it seemed to him that the authority of his work came from the notion that it was originary, that it came from origins in, in, in embodied human experience and was not simply architects looking at other architects. And I find that two relationships with the idea of precedent and the canon philosophically quite interesting. I suppose from my point of view, all of the work I do I see as, as being an argument from history. And one of the points I would make is that when you make a piece of architecture that's that's your piece of work, that the relationship that it has with all of the buildings that have been its precedents are both references that it has, but it also changes them because they can never be read in the same way again because your work has changed their status with the world. So the idea of a kind of time continuum which all architecture exists within and where things can enter into dialogues over time with each other back and forth is something that I find quite an interesting idea. 
I mean, I should have said, obviously, Matharu was awarded an international fellowship, I think, and I, I seem to remember having a conversation with you about that. And that, Again, that's an issue of generosity and recognising work from these encounters you have with people around the world. But presumably, you, when, when you meet these people, do you sit down and talk about work and exchange ideas, or do you think it's just something you, you do kind of remotely, and, and when, you, when you're with them, you're, you're just sharing more human experiences? Um... Well, from my point of view, what I like to do is to find architects who... I mean, the RBA um, Honorary Fellowship System and the Gold Medal System is amazing because any RIBA member can nominate somebody for a fellowship or for, um, for... And so I'm always looking around the world for interesting architects whose work will forward and bring mine forward. And you can then nominate them for an international fellowship, bring them to London, get them to give your students a lecture, yeah. take them out to dinner, and find out why you like them. Yeah. I mean, it's a really, it's really, it's, it's a really, yeah. I mean, you could say it's generous. I'm gaining an enormous yeah. amount from it because of the Mutual fact that you have this yeah. opportunity yeah. to um, engage with a much broader constituency. Yeah. And certainly with the group that you're talking about in Australia, it, it's been, for me, a lovely introduction. Um, I, when I did the fishing hut, I got a very nice um, email from one of that Hawkesbury River set. Who said, "Oh, I see you're, I see you're trying one of ours out." <laughs> it was right. this kind of, you know, quite wry Australian acknowledgement yeah, yeah. of the fact that I'd been looking over their shoulders. But I don't see how it in any way diminishes the work no. that I do, that it stands <clears throat> in a relation to that other work. It seems to me that that's something I'm entirely comfortable with. Great. I should share the uh, question and answer session. Sorry. Um, are there any questions um, from people in the audience? I can just about see. We have a roving mic or two. I've come all this way. You have to ask questions. I've got six questions, so I'm more than happy to. Here we go. On the front row. Thank you very much. Hi. Uh, first of all, thanks very much. No, that was absolutely fantastic. Um, I suspect I'm not the only one in the room who got a great amount of pleasure out of seeing your drawings, particularly um, some of those ones in those early projects, um, talking about the role that you think drawings have in securing work and sort of explaining your ideas to clients. Um, or potential clients. I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about the kind of culture of drawing that you like to bring into your, into your practice and whether that's sort of shared with everyone who works together there. Okay. Um, so I think there are, there are a number of different modes of drawing. Um, I, um, I'm very sceptical of CGIs. I, 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 I mean, we, we, have to, we, have to, we have to make them to win commissions and win competitions. Um, but when I'm an assessor on a competition, I always say to the client, don't look at the CGI. Look, try to understand the underlying order of the building. Um, and Jeff Wall, the photographer, says a great thing. He said, close up, a building disappears. Or if you, if you use buildings habitually, that, that, that you no longer, I mean, you see them, but you don't see them as images anymore. You see them in a different kind of way. And I try and persuade people that the way that a building is felt is very different than the kind of culture of the image. And I'm concerned in a way that architectural culture becomes a kind of, um, um, like an echo chamber of images, because so many architects design buildings which they've only seen as images. So I, I see an image of a building, and then I design my building as, as an imitation of that image. And then to some extent, I'm also designing my building because I know it's going to be photographed and it will produce an image. And then you get into this kind of echo chamber of images where architecture is not something that's made and felt, but it's actually this kind of, this rather friable and, 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 and brittle exchange of, of visual motifs or, or visual representations. So 
we do CGI's, and I, in, a sense, in a sense, I enjoy their pictorial quality, but something that I always do with the project is to sit down and to draw each of the spaces that I want to, to, what I want to express as a feeling, I'll draw it myself. So the student desk with the pin board and the posters of the events are going to this week and their laptop and, or the dining table with the pasta and the salad. I'm not trying to draw an image, I'm trying to draw what it would feel like to be at that table with other students. And that's something that I do as a way of trying to illustrate to the client what I want the building to be in its fundamentals. I guess there's another kind of drawing you do, which is the working drawing, which we talk a lot about in the office. Um, one of my tutors did the Mellon Center, when I was a student, did the Mellon Center with Louis Kahn at Yale. And he had this great thing that Kahn used to say, that the authority of the architect resides in the working drawing. And the way I would put it is, if I get an ordnance survey map and I'm lost, I know it's my fault. I know the ordnance survey map is right, that the authority of the ordnance survey map is so high that it's me that's lost, not the map that's wrong. And that the working drawing, in a sense, embodies the authority of the architect. If the builder looks at it and all the bits of information fall off the page in the order that they would set out and build the building, and when they see tolerances and dimensions and so on, that they're all builderly in their attitude, and that the, the, the builder realizes that they are fully understood and that the working drawing is a dialogue with them, and then real makers trust you, and they feel that they can have conversations with you, and that and that and that, and that, they're, that they're in good hands. And so the kind of authority of the working drawing, I suppose, is something else that I'm really interested in. And finally, the sort of drawings that I didn't show many of here, but we do a lot of in the office, are drawings which I do after the project or even during the project, which are ways of trying to, in the very very busy life of practice of just ways of trying to be in the project. And often we'll do quite communal projects around drawing. We did one for the Venice Biennale this year for the Irish entry about how people with dementia experience buildings. And uh, 20 of us spent three months making this drawing. And we've done other ones, big floor drawings, where the, where the, the whole design team will sit for a week and make this drawing on the floor. And there are just ways of not thinking about architecture as something that you have to do all the time, but just something that you can be in and draw and feel like you're doing it together. So. <clears throat> Thank you very much. Is there another question? No? I can go down my list then. Um, I was struck for the first time tonight in the presentation of the projects about how your work is taking on more of a landscape. And that might be a, you, know, you might say that happens all the time, but certainly tonight for the first time I really recognised you describing landscape more than than detail or townscape. Um, can you describe whether you're working with new references or new collaborators, or whether this is just a natural extension of your work? Um, <coughs> uh, <coughs> I think when I was brought up in Ireland, particularly in the west of Ireland, there was a sense about the landscape that it was highly charged and highly meaningful, and that the relatively spare landscape of my childhood in Ireland, which has now disappeared completely under a sea of bungalows, but that there was something very deliberate and almost haunted about that quality. And when I was a student, there was a group of interesting architects, people like McCullough and Mulvan, who wrote a very beautiful book called The Lost Tradition, about, about that, that, that the relationship between the building and the land had this kind of very charged quality. And for me, it had, it, 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 it's a very kind of strong, poetic, haunting sense mm -hmm. 
that I got from my upbringing. And I found it interesting coming to England because the landscape is never, is never like that. There's a great poem by Seamus Heaney where he comes to Gloucestershire and talks about the difference, that, 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 that this cultivated landscape, this, this, this made landscape that you have in Gloucestershire, there's, there's nothing like it that he can compare it to. The sense that there's a different paradigm of the land there. And I found it very interesting working in England, particularly in the first part, the first decade of the 21st century. A lot of the work we were doing was about landscape, but it was in old industrial towns like Preston or Castleford and so on. And it's only more recently that we've been working in Oxford and Hampshire that we've had a chance to work in these mature landscapes. And I'm trying to bring some of the sensibility that I was brought up with to see that when you come to a landscape, you feel as though the combination of buildings and the lie of the land and the planting are trying, that they have, they have that sense that they're trying to tell you something or they're about to tell you something or they've just told you something that you shouldn't have missed, that that kind of that sense of, 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 of meaning brimming up from the landscape is something that... Um, we're, we're looking, um, we're working with a lot of landscape designers at the moment and enjoying different collaborations. Um, um, so we've about, I mean, I've only showed a fragment of them, but we've about 10 substantial landscape projects working with different landscape designers and trying to open up conversations with them. Any more questions? I can ask the final one then. Um, we spoke briefly outside about the award you just got, the Jenks Award, and it's an award that you, you spoke of fondly because it was one that, that arrived. You, it wasn't something you enter. You don't sort of put your work forward to it and, and try and hit a category. Um, but it was, it was an interesting, and I guess because of that, because the award was given to you, you, you kind of get the quotes that are associated with it. And I was just interested to know what your reaction to the award was, first of all, perhaps, and then secondly, because Jenks was sort of saying that um, you've, you've mastered the skill in all traditions, uh, classicism, modernism, and postmodernism, saying the isms are all under his belt but not on his back. And I was just wondering what you thought of that quote, because obviously Jenks has a lot of ideas and, and wrote a lot about postmodernism and style, and, and your work is maturing and it's developing a, a kind of DNA, obviously, but um, obviously what, what, what do you think about winning this award and, and what do you think about being told that you're, you've mastered postmodernism as well as classicism and modernism? Well, I think that architects often use postmodernism in a very facile sense as a kind of, and it's now seen as slightly unfashionable or even an insult to say something is postmodern. But I tend to think about postmodernism, post let's say, philosophically. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a different sort of thing. And um, uh, the lecture I gave last night was much more theoretical and it was about some of these issues and it would take a little bit of time to elucidate them here tonight. But I think that the key issue that I'm saying about all buildings is that we as architects often think about the notion of truth in buildings, that the buildings have a truth-telling capacity. And that might be truth to materials or truth to structure or form follows function. And I'm interested in the fact that before the mid-19th century, architects would never really have thought like that. In fact, Semper says the destruction of the material is the beginning of architecture, the, 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 idea, the, the notion that the idea comes before it. And he makes this amazing point about the Parthenon that it's only the thin layer of paint on the Parthenon that is the architecture. And so I'm, I'm interested in how we've got stuck in this. I mean... It's a very virtuous thing to express, or apparently express, the truth of the building in that sense. 
But I do think that architecture has fallen back on what I call intrinsic meanings. Mm -hmm. in, in other words, because there's, and this is what postmodernism is, because there's a crisis of public meaning, because we don't have con communally constituted forms of knowledge that we can express in our buildings, as they might have done in a Gothic cathedral or a royal palace from um, the, the Renaissance, that, that commonly understood constituted permanent forms of meaning, that, um, that architecture has stopped telling public parables. Mm -hmm. And it stopped, it's the, the, the figurative aspect of architecture that used to communicate to a society stories about itself has disappeared. And that architecture has lapsed into a kind of silence mm -hmm. or a kind of introversion where virtue in architecture is the sort of, to use the German word, the sort of sasslicht um, expression of, of interior properties, of, of properties that are internal to the building itself. And I think it produces a kind of silence in architecture, which empties out our, 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 our urban landscapes, that empties out our imaginations. And, and the public feel, I mean, most of us as architects know if we go to a public consultation, that people who are not architects find the architecture that we make, let's use a word, they find it a little bit blank. They find, and they talk to you about window mullions, and could there be more window mullions, or could there be more, and they, they want to feel their way back to an older kind of architecture, and, they, and there's a kind of reaction against. Now, I think that we need to find ways of addressing that, and I think that part of the reason they feel that anxiety is they, they, they witness the sort of silence of architecture. And so the extent to which Charles was calling the work that we do postmodern is something that I accept. In part also, because the truth that we think we're telling and if I'm looking at a building and saying that wood there that you see, it really is the building. Mm -hmm. It probably really isn't because then you've got a layer of insulation and you've got some funny metal clips and then you've got this other thing and then maybe you've wood back on the inside again. But you end up with a core form which is doing the work of uh, insulation or holding the thing up and two representative forms on the outside that are claiming to tell the truth about the building. But because modern construction is laminar and made of lots of layers, some of those layers must be doing something and other layers must merely be representing or lining the thing. Mm -hmm. And so that, that modernist kind of mantra about truth to structure, truth to materials, the authenticity of certain forms of materials, I think needs to be examined. And that's one of the things that we do in our work. Great. Thank you very much. Um, well, it's been great to listen to your lecture and to chair these brief questions. I'm now going to hand over to um, Murtaza, Vice Chair of the local branch to give a vote of thanks and to make a few announcements, but thank you very much. Yes, thank you. Thank you, Nal. Um, that was a really stimulating lecture on a cold autumnal evening. Um, I did also want to thank uh, Rob Gregory for um, hosting, hosting the Q&A session on behalf of the Architecture Centre and uh, Jody's work, and also our sponsor, uh, Ibstock, Ian Landra at the front here. Um, I really just came up here to um, give you guys a little update on the events coming up. I had four events on my list uh, this morning. That grew to about eight events. So um, I'm just going to go really quickly through the whole thing. The whole thing is uh, really all available online if you ever need to see it on Eventbrite and the Architecture Centre website. The first of those coming up is the RIBA site tour of uh, Paintworks Phase 3 on Bath Road with Strider Gown and Cress Nicholson, um, 
phase three is a 210 home mixed use residential scheme with six and a half thousand meters squared of commercial floor space. Uh, this is exclusive to our IBA members um, and I'm told PPE and a CSCS card will be required. So any of you there sitting with CSCS cards are probably looking at me rather smugly, smugly right now. Um, details available on Eventbrite. Second, on the 8th of November, is the RIBA Gloucester Great British Buildings lecture by Chris Loyne on uh, the outhouse that was a finalist in the 2016 Sterling Prize. So it'll be a one to get to if you can, but there'll be another opportunity if you can't get to Gloucester. Uh, third one, 9th of November, over here at the Arnold Feeney in conjunction with UE Design Thinking series uh, is taking place. The first of those will be about emerging practice. Um, the question will be, what does it take to succeed as a small practice? And there'll be presentations and discussion from Stonewood Design, Mark Ray Architects, Barefoot Architecture, and Emmett Russell Architects. Tickets available from the Arnold Feeney box office. Halfway through, 10th of November, the RIBA annual lecture series um, kicks off with Louisa Hutton of Sauerbrach and Hutton, a Berlin-based practice. Um, Louisa was a former Bristol graduate and is coming along to discuss her projects, including the Brandhorst Museum in Munich. Um, this is a new initiative designed to bring together architects and students and will be taking place at Frenchay on the 10th of November. On the fifth, sorry, fifth one down, um, 16th of November, the RIBA and the Forum for Tomorrow are holding a pizza and bowling night. The night promises eating, bowling, drinking, socialising with friends and colleagues at Bristol's boutique bowling alley the lanes with pizza provided by Ray's Pizza. So get down to that if you can. I think there's only actually seven tickets left, so I don't even know why it's on this list. Uh, there we go. Um, next one down, <laughs> 23rd of November, um, Gloucester RIBA will be holding an event about working with clients, and that will feature Stephen Hodder, MBE. Um, again, you can find tickets on Eventbrite for that. And then if you, if you miss Chris Loyne at Gloucester on the 8th of November, you can see him again here at the Architecture Centre um, on the 30th of November, and that will be the second in the series of design thinking sessions. Um, again, he'll be talking about the Outhouse and the Mansur Medal Award-winning Stormy Castle over in Wales. And I believe finally, just to wrap it up, things are getting a little bit festive. 16th of December, a day known as Black Friday in some places, um, the RIBA will be holding the Bristol and Bath Branch Christmas, ca Christmas Carol concert over at Clifton Cathedral. So I think that wraps it up. That's, uh, that's eight events, a plethora of architectural events to get you through those cold winter nights. Um, and I'd just like to finish off by saying thank you again to Neil, uh, Rob, Jody for organising at the Architecture Centre and Ian Lander. Thank you very much. Thank you.